topic that causes many to be embarrassed. Again, to speak of only in whispers. It's a subject that one author some years ago referred to is uh, among the hot potatoes of the church. Another author named Michael uh, Iaconale wrote a book that I recently read entitled Messy Spirituality, God's Annoying Love for Imperfect People. Plan to be very honest today. It's not meant to embarrass anyone, but some undoubtedly may feel uncomfortable. I almost want to uh, create an atmosphere of a fireside chat, not so much as a preaching service. And I'm approaching this topic today not from an administrative point of view. As a church organization in the General Conference, the North American Division or the Pacific Union Conference or even the Hawaii Conference, but from a local church perspective where the rubber really meets the road. The church in its official capacity has addressed this topic in a number of uh, settings and sermons and seminars, conferences, studies. There's been books written about this. Official policy has been established. But it's my impression that the corporate church has really missed a crucial component or segment of the issue by failing to equip local churches and families. My title today is Family, Where Are Your Accusers? Let us pray. Father, I am but a broken vessel, inadequate to the task at hand, in need of a touch from the master's hand. Mold me and speak through me today and let your people hear a word from on high. I want to first lay a biblical foundation, which is often used in discussing this topic, but also suggest that we may not always interpret these texts totally correctly and really often take them out of context. And then I want to take you on a journey with me over the last few weeks to illustrate what I'm talking about. My scripture today is found in John chapter 8, verses 1 to the 11. I just want you to mark that because we're going to use it at the end. I would like for you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We're going to go to chapter 1. Genesis. If I'm not turning with you in the Bible, it's because I have printed this out and using some other translations as we go along today. But if you turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. The Bible says, 
And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created him male and female created he them. We move through Genesis. We know the time of the flood because of the wickedness there. And we come over into Genesis chapters 18 and 19 was deal with the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know and are familiar with these stories. I won't read all of that text, but want to highlight several verses as we go along. As you recall, in that story, God came down to visit Abraham, and he warned him about the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, I told him he was going to destroy the city. And then Abraham began to bargain with God. And as we see in that discussion, in verse 26, the Lord said, If I find, and I'm reading from the New International Reader's Version, if I find 50 godly people in the city of Sodom, I will save it. I will spare the whole place because of them. The dialogue continued in the following verses, and they began to bargain and continue. They went from 45 to 40 to 30, on down through those verses until you get to a verse number 32. And then he said, Lord, don't let your anger burn against me. Let me speak just one more time. What if there are only 10 are found there? And he answered and said, if there are 10, I will not destroy it. Well, you know, if you continue on in chapter 19, they couldn't find 10 people there. And so, the story continues. Lot, who was living there with his family inside of tomorrow, had a visitor, had two visitors. We find Lot, when these visitors arrive, sitting in the gate of the city. Lot meets and greets these folks and invites them to come to his house. And we find as you move through that chapter in verse um, 12. Well, let me back up. Verse 9. Bible says, get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play judge. We'll 
uh, treat him worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. Let me back up one more verse um, to verse 6, two more. This is where Lot met them. He met, he went outside to meet them. Um, no, no, I'm sorry. Let me back up even further. Uh, go back to verse 3. Here it says, but he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered into his house. He prepared a meal for them, baked bread uh, without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Solomon, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot. Where are the men that came to you tonight? Bring them out. In the King James Version, it says, we want to know them. In the New um, International Reader's Version, says, we want to have sex with them. So we find a lot went outside, shut the door behind them. They attempted to break down the door around Lot in the following verses until the angels went out and they pulled Lot in to protect him. Lot had even told them that, listen, I have two daughters. I'll give them to you. But don't harm these men. Now, I'm a father. I have a daughter and two beautiful granddaughters. I don't know that I could stoop to that low. I think I would die before I would want to have or turn them over to uh, the purposes that these men wanted to have them for. And so the story goes. Finally, Lot grabbed Lot, his two daughters. He even, Lot went out and tried to find the potential son-in-laws and bring them with him as they left the city. They refused to come. Um, so they left the city. And as Paul Harvey says, and then there's the rest of the story. You know that it's a familiar story. You know that as they left, Lot's wife turned around and looked back at the city and she turned into a pillar of salt. But have you read the rest of that chapter? It's very interesting. If you read from verses 30 on through 36, um, actually beginning at verse 33, he says, that night they got their father drunk with wine and the older daughter went in and slept with him. If you go back to 32, it says, let's get our father drunk with wine and sleep with him to preserve our family line through our father. 33 that night they, they got their father drunk and the older daughter went in and slept with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The next day the older daughter said to the younger, last night I slept with the father, let us go uh, get him drunk with wine again tonight 
and go in and sleep with him so that we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father drunk that night and the younger daughter went and slept with him. Again, he was not aware of it when they lay down and when they got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son whose name was Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today, referring to biblical times. And the younger daughter also had a son. His name was Ben-Amani. And he is the father of the Ammonites of that day. Interesting, isn't it? The perversions that were going on in that city. Now, there are several other stories. If you go to Leviticus, um, the children of Israel had come out of, the, of Egypt after 400 years of slavery. And their whole society had to be reestablished. And in um, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, we find that the Lord laid out various moral, civic, um, social, criminal laws. And all through chapter 20, you find that he has specific instructions with regard to individual sexual relations with one another. I won't go through and read all of them. You can jot these down if you read between verses 10 and verses uh, 21. It lies out in very specific and graphic terms what is not accepted before the Lord. In Judges 19, there's another story about a Levite and his concubine. In verses 22 through 27, again, I won't read them in specifics because of time, but we find that the men of that city approached a visitor that the Levite had brought to his home. And they wanted him for purposes of having sex with him, homosexual sex. The Levite provided a concubine to them who they raped along with his daughter, which they raped and they killed. You find that as you read that chapter, uh, continuing from verses 22 through verse 29. And then in Psalms 97 and verse 10, the Bible says, let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. And there are other texts in the New Testament that speak to perversions. 1 Corinthians 6.9 says, Don't you know that evil people will not, receive, it will not be received in God's kingdom? Don't be fooled. Those who commit sexual sins will, be put, will not receive the kingdom. Neither will those who worship statues and gods commit uh, gods or commit adultery. Neither will the men who are prostitutes or commit 
homosexual sins. Now let's be very clear about the Bible biblical position. The Bible is clear and states that God created male and female. And in the area of sexual forms of eros, love and expression, he endorses that. However, and we need to understand the difference between eros and agape love. Agape love is love for all individuals. Christ demonstrated that through his life on earth. Um, but in political correct terms of today, he condemns alternative lifestyles, declaring it a sin and an abomination, and it is abhorrent to him. So my question is, do we fully understand and make the distinction between the two kinds of love? It's important for us in understanding God's purposes for heroes on, on this earth. We must, not al we must also not forget that we are all victims and influenced by sin throughout the generations. I want to illustrate it this way. I'm going to throw four initials out to you. Some of you will recognize this immediately. Others will need some explanation. G-L-B-T stands for gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender. And then the term homophobia, which is basically in simple terms without going into a long definition, is our society's reaction to live, to those who live alternative lifestyles. Now let me be clear, I'm not talking about advocating same-sex marriage. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. My wife Joyce and I were married in 1970. Our little flower girl, who was two or three at the time, uh, so cute, we, she came down the aisle distributing the petals and so forth, and when she got to the front, as we were um, in the ceremony, she turned around and started to pick them up because in practice, you know, after she learned how to do that, then she turned around and picked them up. We all had a good laugh. During her last two years of high school, she came and lived with us. Several years later, we went to his wedding. That was not a grammatical mistake on my part. He went through a transgender process from female and became a man. Many of you have been praying for my cousin Tom. Um, let me share some background about Tom. 
Tom is about four years older than I am. His sister is about six months younger than I am. Tom is a very talented individual. Uh, talented musician, played the accordion piano beautifully. He has a PhD from Stanford University in sociology that's currently the vice president for the foundation responsible for funding for the endowment for the USC medical, uh, or excuse me, law school. His sister has a PhD from UCLA in women's studies and human sexuality. Their mother, for many years, was the executive assistant to the dean of the USC medical school uh, until she retired. Both of my cousins are gay. Tom has been HIV, HIV positive for many years, but well controlled uh, on the cocktail that uh, Magic Johnson and others that can afford that uh, have been taking. However, we know that the side effects of HIV limit the effectiveness of the immune system which then reduces the resistance to combat diseases of infection. Um, and so consequently, the throat cancer that Tom is experiencing this time is terminal. We don't know how much longer he's going to be with us. He has laid three partners uh, to rest. Now, why am I sharing this with you today? Last summer, I went to a family reunion. Um, it was a 100-year celebration in Canada on my mother's side. That was the second time I had seen Tom in almost 40 years. He had brought his mother to my, to my mother's funeral in 2008. Another cousin who had coordinated uh, the reunion and responsible for compiling much of the family history and communicating with the family, usually communicated with the family through global, global emails. Uh, and recently, she sent out an email with some updated information and then concluded her communication with this, and I quote, also pray for Tom. He's very ill and may not have much longer to live. Pray that he will make everything right with God because after death, we all face the judgment. Without going into a lot of detail, that set off a firestorm in the family. And after sharing these emails with my wife, she said, you know, Leroy, you need to respond as a practicing Christian and Adventist to those who had responded who did not profess or our faith, or, or who are no longer members. Um, 
or I've left the church because of being ostracized because of lifestyle choices. This set me to thinking about what I would say in response and really form the basis of my thoughts today here uh, with you. I've heard preachers many times say that sermon preparation is as much for them as it is for the congregation, and today, this is the case. I'm talking to myself as much as I'm talking to you. Why do I share this today? I'm a fourth-generation Adventist. I know the rules, written, unwritten, the doctrines, standards, traditions, what's right and wrong, acceptable within the church, and without. The church is taking strong stands against alternative lifestyles and considers them a sin. And we have identified them this morning in scripture. And of course, if you're not aware, there's ongoing discussion and debate that's going on in the larger church of alternative lifestyles. You know five states have passed same-sex marriage laws. And we are aware of passing um, and then rescinding of Proposition 8 in California. In fact, Tom and his current partner were married when that particular time was open. Many other states are considering legislation for modifying marriage laws. The don't ask, don't, don't tell provision in the military has been removed and gays are now openly allowed or will be soon allowed to serve in the military. You know, anthropologists have shown uh, and discovered in studying ancient societies where one of the tactics used for punishment of members who, were, uh, who have committed various types of crimes while not imprisoning them was isolation. Even though they did not imprison them, uh, the offending party, they isolated them by ignoring them within the community from family activities, social contact, by refusing to make eye contact when they're in their presence, refusing to acknowledge them in any fashion. They were ostracized to the point that they often became depressed, often going insane, committing suicide, or dying a premature death. Are we guilty of doing this in our society today? Do we, in many respects, in our contemporary society, do the same thing to those who exhibit alternative lifestyles? Now, here's the dilemma for me. Doesn't the Bible and spirit of prophecy inform us that as Jesus commissioned to hate the sin and love the sinner? There are certainly a number of texts that inform us of that area. But contrary to the often quoted phrase, my research shows that there is no specific text stating, hate the sin and love the sinner. 
It is derived largely from the spirit of prophecy and other writings. You know, and it dawned on me in considering this journey that I've been going on that I don't really know how to do that. The real problem with love the sinner, hate the sin, is that it, it is rarely met. It is really just a Christian sounding platitude aimed at people whose behavior we really struggle with. People whose sins we really hate and people that if we were blatantly honest, we really don't love. This statement is just a salve to salve our conscience and make us feel like we're being Christian when we really, we're really displaying unchristian attitudes toward others. Another reason why this saying is so wrong is that often the sinner and the sin are inseparable. In other words, someone's behavior often defines him or her as a person. So that when we say that we hate the sin, what the person is hearing is, I hate you. The Bible talks about loving the person. For God so loved the world, as noted in John 3.16. Of course, the only way we can really know if we love the sinner is by spending time with that person and helping them when they are in need. How do you really feel about the drug addict with needle scars, missing teeth? What is your real attitude toward the homeless person who hasn't bathed or changed his clothes for days or weeks? Do you really love the gay man or woman at work or in the family? Or do we really tolerate them? Do we pretend to love the person but then say derogatory things about them behind their back? We only know the nature of our hearts when we are confronted with someone we struggle with. And let's be honest about our struggles rather than hide behind love the sinner and hate the sin. And there are other quotes I could go on to. But as I began processing this, I came to realize that I don't know how to effectively do what Christ commissioned us to do. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Being honest with myself, I quickly realized that I don't know how to do that from our Savior's perspective. Yes, I have training and exposure to alternative lifestyles. Professionally, I have uh, dealt with alternative lifestyles in a number of settings over the years. I mentioned professional settings because I realized that it has been different for me in dealing with family, church, or friends. There's no question that the church has influenced my perspective. I've had to ask myself questions, some questions. Was I passing judgment almost unconsciously without giving it much thought? I grew up in the 50s and 60s. 
with a pastor whose youngest son was gay. He died in the 1980s. Did we talk about it? Only in whispers. Was it addressed in a formal or professional way? Never. As I thought about my relationship or lack of relationship with my cousin over the years, it dawned on me that I have fallen into the same pattern. I'm afraid um, the same pattern that many in our society, in our church have followed. Avoidance is an all too often approach taken by society. Members of the church and members of family. I realize that through the years I have avoided almost unconsciously maintaining a relationship with my cousin, never giving it much thought. I know it's a two-way street, but is that an excuse for on my behalf? Did I feel uncomfortable with them? No, not really. What was it that kept me at a distance? A distance. Was it the influence of the church? Something for us to ponder as we think about this. After all, are we not commissioned to avoid the evil as such? Relationships are so often labeled, especially within the church. Who then defines evil, sin, us or God? Who then is my neighbor, as the Great Commission commands us, of loving your neighbor as yourself? This has forced me to think about the reasons for the distance all these years. Have I consciously or unconsciously been judgmental as my cousin verbalized? Now, I've kept up with my cousin over the years, primarily through their mother. And as I think about it, she, in fact, is probably one of the best examples of Christ's love, not only as a parent and a mother, but also as a Christian. The church in many ways has hurt and ostracized her because of her children's lifestyle choices. She, on the other hand, has supported both of them with undying love through the years, singing their praises and accomplishments. Now, I know that I'm not alone in confronting these issues. Every family if not in your immediate, certainly in your extended family, is or has or will have to address lifestyle issues in some form over time. Again, the question is asked, how do I do that or do what the Lord commissioned us to do? Hate the evil and love the person as a child of the same God. Those family members who have chosen alternative lifestyles don't go away. They are with us. 
They are still your cousin, your niece, your nephew, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, maybe even mother or father, or related to you by in-law or marriage. If not in your family, you certainly know of someone's family who is struggling with this issue. It's close to home and not some distant, abstract issue. What are we to do? Do we ever stop to think or ponder how someone struggling with these lifestyle issues wants to be treated? Or do we just judge? setting off a whole series of reactions and responses. What is our responsibility? Is there a role for us to play as one of God's children, as an immediate, extended relative or fellow church member? Does our labeling, stereotyping, moralizing get in the way all questions we need to uh, collectively ask as a community. These are some of the questions that I have been pondering and struggling with over the last few weeks as this family drama has played out. My cousin Tom's attitude has been amazing throughout this. He remains upbeat, positive, and most encouraging to those around him. His concern is not for himself so much, but for others who are suffering or are suffering with him. In spite of the prognosis being dim, he has not let this discourage him, even as the disease progresses and the pain continues to increase. He says he remains at peace with himself and with God. He expresses appreciation for the prayers while at the same time being hurt by pronouncements of judgment. You know, the statement, love your neighbor as you love yourself, is found nine times in the Bible. Um, in Galatians 5.14, the Apostle Paul says that this truth sums up the entire law. In John 2.8, this commandment is called the royal law. Jesus illustrates how we are able to love neighbors as ourselves by telling the story of the good Samaritan. Samaritans in that time were hated and despised by the Jews. Samaritans were half-caste Jews because they had intermarried with Gentiles. They were viewed as the worst, worst than Gentiles. The lowest of the low, the greatest of sinners. Jesus could not have found a more powerful illustration to prove his point. He didn't teach love the sinner, hate the sin. He taught love the person like they were you. May this challenge us to the core of our faith. Now I'd like to close with our scripture test found in John chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 11. I'm reading in your parents, in your 
presence from the New International Reader's Version. In verse 1, it says, But Jesus went to the Mount of, Mount of Olives. At sunrise, he arrived in the temple courtyard again. As the people gathered around him there, he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman. She had been caught in adultery. Now I noted here, what was the man? To my knowledge and definition of adultery, it takes two. Unless, and we won't go there. They made her stand in front of the crowd or the group. They said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught having sex with a man who was not her husband. In the law, Moses commanded us to kill such a woman by throwing stones at them. Now what do you say? They were trying to trap Jesus with that question. They wanted to have a reason to bring charges against him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Verse 7, they kept asking him questions. So he stood up and said to them, Has any one of you not sinned? Then you be the first to throw a stone at her. He bent down again and wrote on the ground. I can just see the scene. Didn't look at him. He just began to write. That drew them in to the scene there. They're standing over his shoulder watching what he has written on the ground. Those who heard what he had said began to go away. They left one at a time, the older ones first. Soon only Jesus was left. The woman was still standing there. Jesus stood up and asked her, Woman, in the New International Version, it says, Where are they? In the King James Version, it says, where are your accusers? Has anyone found you guilty? No one, sir, she said. Then I don't find you guilty either, Jesus said. Go. King James Version says, go and sin no more. The New International Version says, go now and leave your life of sin. My challenge to us today is, am I, my family, my church, a safe place with love, acceptance, tolerance, and understanding is exhibited as a safe place for struggling individuals who land 
to land where they can hear the voice of a loving Savior. In closing today, instead of singing a closing song, I want you to meditate and listen to Hezekiah Walker in his chorale. I've used this before, and it has a real meaning for us. The song is entitled, I Need You to Survive. Just listen to the words as we meditate. Take it up, everybody. Survive. I pray.
Continue to loop that as we pray. Father, today, as we have touched on this subject that causes many of us to be uncomfortable, we realize that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. I understand that I, of myself, am incapable of separating sin and sinner because I am a sinner saved only by your grace. That is your job because you paid the price in your perfect, sinless nature for the right to do that. I thank you for the process you have been taking me through and for helping me to realize that we are in need of each other and responsible for each other. As the song says, I'll pray for you. You pray for me. We are all part of God's family. I won't harm you with actions and words from my mouth as was so poignantly illustrated in the story of, in John 8 of the woman found in adultery. It is my prayer that you are able to write in the dirt and the muck and mire, mess and disorder of my life a message that conveys to others. Where are your accusers? Only you, Father, as a loving, forgiving Father, can then speak to the broken contract heart. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And it is not for me, a sinner, to judge and attempt to decide what that means. It is between the individual and God. It is my responsibility to love radically with all of its ramifications, period. As we continue this journey together, let the people say, Amen. Thank you.